0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 10. I am going to have a handout for you that actually has the text as well, so that'll be up for you to decide if you want to look at your own copy of Scripture or what I've prepared. Um, but even before we... Wait a second, I'm not ready yet. Even before we hand that out, I just want to get our our hearts and minds thinking a little bit about uh, what's going on in this passage. Let me get the things situated here real quick. All right. Um, so I want you to think about an analogy with me just for a second, um, and it, you know it's a little bit of a stretch, but just uh, just kind of. Follow along with me. This is a little bit of a, a long sentence, but uh, lock in here for a second. Um, I want you to think about what, what will happen to your faith when, when your ship, cruising along the ocean of life, guided by the winds and the currents of your culture, suddenly collides with the submerged iceberg of the values of the kingdom of God. Okay, there's a lot to that sentence, so I'm going to read it again because it's kind of an involved analogy. Okay? But what will happen or what has happened to your faith when your ship, cruising along, cruising along in the ocean of life, guided by the winds and currents of your culture, suddenly collides with the submerged iceberg of the values of the kingdom of God? It might be a better analogy to not talk about an iceberg of the kingdom of God, but a whole continent that all of a sudden appears and you didn't realize was there. What will will you do? What have you done? Uh, Will you abandon the ship, as you should, with all that you hold dear and cling to the lifeboat of your salvation? Or will you prefer to go down with the ship? Loving what you've always known and valued, more than the hope of true life and salvation. I think that those this illustration, it's imperfect, but it it, it starts to make us think about the truths of our text today. It, it touches on in particular one key aspect. Remember, in our study of Mark's Gospel, we've been constantly challenged about how unexpected and countercultural Jesus' kingdom is. He's not the kind of king we expect, and the values of this kingdom are not the kind that we anticipate. We're called to follow Jesus into uncomfortable waters. And today, we come to a section of Jesus' teaching that is chock full of irony and enigmas. Here we see even more the enigmatic nature of God's kingdom and the difficulty of entering into it. All right, so that's kind of setting the stage for us as we, as we look at our text here today. Bill, would you mind passing these out for me? <laughs> so this handout is similar to what we had before. You're going to find on the front, the most important side has the text printed out. Then on the back, you have an outline that we're going to walk through. But you'll see on the front, I've broken the text down into the three scenes you see in the passage that we're going to be looking at, Mark chapter 10, 13 through 31. So you see the three scenes broken down. And I've also done something else with the handout I've tried to lay it out in a way where the dialogue stands out. So you see the exchange between Jesus and and individuals in the the different scenes, and hopefully that'll be helpful. When I read these passages in a a block format in my Bible, sometimes it's hard to follow the exchange back and forth in the dialogue. So that's why I've laid it out like that for you. Maybe that'll be helpful as we work our way through. So as we get started, I want to give a little bit of a a sober warning to us about what Mark is up to here. I think he's, he's at it again. He's painfully minimalistic in his presentation of information in this passage. There's so much more we want to know. He doesn't tell us everything, and he doesn't interpret everything for us. And it's difficult and you're going to read these, this, this, these stories, and you are going to have questions. And I have spent hours trying to answer my questions, and I don't have them all answered yet. So we're going to spend minutes trying to answer your questions, and we are not going to answer them all. But if that's all we focus on this morning, then we're going to miss the point. So be careful here as you, as you walk through this passage, these passages Be careful that you don't miss our end goal. We should have these questions. And Mark is using these questions that naturally arise from this text to make us feel the tensions he wants us to about our own lives and about our values. But but we're not going to get to the root of all of these questions. Instead, we need to get at the two main questions that this passage raises, which really are the same question. So just before we even read the text, real quick, um, let me just catch myself here. Um, actually, no, let's not, re- let's not talk about that yet. Sorry, uh, I'm getting things out of order in my own, my own approach here. So um, let's read the passage. And as we do, I want you to notice the dialogue, the exchanges that are there. So take note of that. And then I want you to do two other things. <clears throat> so we're going to take our time as we read this. So do two more things. First, if you have a pen, anywhere you have a question that comes up, like, huh, really? Why did he say that? What, what's the motivation behind that statement? Just put a little question mark right there. Wherever you, you, you encounter something in the passage that makes you wonder, <coughs> uh, go ahead and, and mark it with a question, okay? And then the other thing I want you to do as we go through is identify, maybe underline, uh, yeah, let's go with underline. Anytime that you encounter language related to something like the kingdom of God, enter the kingdom of God, inherit eternal life, those kinds of descriptions. Okay, so underline those as we read through the text. I'm trying to help us call attention to some repeated ideas and key, key, key things here. All right, so let's begin reading scene one there, verse 13 of Mark chapter 10. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And then we have this scene change here in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have. And give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And then we have another scene change here in verse 23. Not a complete scene change, but a, a change of focus. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with him. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So I expect that as we read through that text, there were a few questions that it raised for you. It raises many for, for, for me as well. But when, you, when we read this passage, we actually encounter two questions that are directly asked in the passage. And I think these two questions that are directly asked actually drive us toward the central themes that Jesus and Mark are pointing us toward. So do you see the in in the first scene, we actually don't see a direct question, but the theme is there. But in the second scene, in verse 17, we have somebody coming to Jesus with a question, right? And I think this actually drives towards our our theme. Uh, Our theme really is, our theme question is, what is required to enter God's kingdom? And we, I mean, that's, in this case, the, the man who comes to Jesus doesn't ask it exactly that way. Um, But it's it's a similar, what what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And then, if we jump ahead to verse 26, um, the disciples ask Jesus after hearing his teaching, then who can be saved? Right? Uh, This is the operative question that's underlying everything I think that's going on in this passage. What are the immigration requirements for God's kingdom? What is required... To enter God's kingdom. And so I think scene by scene we'll see several different answers to this specific question that link together to to give us a full picture, or at least in this context, uh, a complete picture of what uh, Jesus wants us to understand about entrance into his kingdom. But isn't it interesting at this point that previously uh, the disciples were discussing in chapter 9 what greatness in his kingdom would look like? And here Jesus has done what? He said, we're not gonna talk about what it takes to be at the top in the kingdom. We're actually gonna just talk about entrance. He's lowered the bar. What matters here is not about that that question about greatness in the kingdom. What matters is entrance. That's what each of us should be focused on and concerned about. And so that's that's where we're gonna focus our time. So in scene one, I think what we're going to see in answer to this is the kingdom entrance requires childlike empty-handedness. I think kingdom entrance requires childlike empty-handedness. I think that that's what verses 13 through 16 are teaching us. So let's take a look at it. Notice here at the beginning of verse 13, it just says, and they were bringing children to him. So it's a quick transition from the prior scene where Jesus had just been explaining to his disciples what he taught about divorce and remarriage that that Bill worked through with us last Sunday. So he makes this quick transition, leaving that scene and coming back to the topic of children again, which had been something we encountered earlier in chapter 9. So here in this case, we see the disciples are turning away children from Jesus. Apparently, parents were seeking out a blessing for their kids. This was not an uncommon thing for parents to do, pursuing blessings from teachers uh, in this day. And notice what crops up again. Remember when John saw somebody casting out demons in Jesus' name, but he wasn't following Jesus in their group? What did John want to happen? He was forbidding that man, and he wanted to stop it, right? So that exclusive, unwelcoming spirit of the disciples crops up again here where they're refusing the entrance of these children. And we all should be aghast and shocked because Jesus specifically instructed them about receiving and welcoming children in chapter 9. And here they're they're doing the same thing. So this, this theme of the disciples not quite getting it. The depth of their lack of understanding here continues. And the term that's used, they, they, weren't, just, you know, they weren't just blocking their way. The rebuke was a harsh rebuke, probably to the parents bringing these kids to Jesus. But, but I want you to, to, to do something. In verse, verse, verse 14, I want you to circle, Jesus saw it. That is actually something that gets repeated throughout this passage in significant ways. Okay, but Jesus saw it. He saw what was happening and he was indignant. And then he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus was indignant. He was animated by this injustice. He was angry because children were being devalued. But he was also angry because his followers were not understanding the basic principles of his kingdom. it's, It's good for us to pause and observe what it is that makes our king angry. Because what makes someone angry tells us a lot about them. So in the same moment that Jesus exalts the value of children... He also takes the opportunity to teach his disciples about the kingdom's values. We've already mentioned um, how Jesus, his positive attitude towards children is countercultural. It's it's radical in his day. But Jesus actually uses the low status of kids in that day to make his main point here in this passage. The the statement that he makes in verse 14 is a, a bold statement. He says, The kingdom belongs to that kind of person, to to children. It belongs to them. Jesus is making children partner owners, stakeholders in the kingdom of God. The kingdom belongs not to the great and powerful, but to kids. What kind of kingdom is this? There's this enigmatic nature to the kingdom that just keeps on coming up. And Jesus then in verse 15, he calls for our attention. He says, truly I say to you. And when he does that, it's like um, his teacher voice. It's like um, the moral of the story is coming here. Okay, so listen, wake up. And here Jesus shows us the first requirement for entering the kingdom, right? He says, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. Kingdom entrance requires childlike empty-handedness. Now I've added some interpretation there by adding the empty-handedness to the equation. Because there's a question. In what way should we be like a child? Uncontrolled? Running around like a screaming banshee? Undiscerning? Foolish? Like a child? I mean, Paul uses that kind of language to describe children. So in what sense should we be like a child is a question we have to answer. And I think what he's driving at is empty-handedness. Um, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a commentator um, who I think just very simply describes it like this. I think it's helpful. The point Jesus is making is we must receive his kingdom like a child receives a gift, empty-handedly. Um, a good illustration of this is to think about the last time you went out, for a meal with a friend or with a family member, and you had a little bit of a debate about who was going to foot the bill. And that that internal struggle of who's going to be in debt to whom is something that's very adult, isn't it, right? It's not very childlike. So uh, the other day, yesterday, uh, my sister met us at Cook's Farm Dairy. And Ashton's Orchard in Ortonville, um, which is my wife's old stomping grounds where she, she grew up. So she came down with her two-year-old daughter, Isla. And my mom and dad were with us, Max and Cal. And we went and saw the cows and um, went and had donuts and uh, cider. And I reflected to my wife, you know, all for the days when we could go look at cows and apples, And we could entertain our children for hours. (laughs) Those days are gone. (laughs) Um, But the point that I wanted to highlight is when we came to buy the cider and the donuts, I had grabbed it, and my my sister was like, no, no, you know, you're not paying for that. I'm paying for that. I'm like, no, you know, and there's that tug, right, of what's going to happen here. But when we got the donut, even before we got the donuts, we mentioned donuts to Isla. Her response was not to reach into her purse and pull out cash, or reach into her wallet and find her credit card and say, "Well, I'm going to take care of this." No, her response was she immediately started doing this when she heard the word donuts. And when the donuts came out, <coughs> this is this was her posture, right? It was empty-handedness, and that is the requirement that Jesus is describing for entrance into His kingdom. We're not coming with our status, with our clout, with our credentials, with our resume. We're coming empty-handedly and receiving a gift. This is the requirement. And I actually think that's the main theme of this whole passage. And then Jesus weaves it into dealing with adults who struggle with wealth and other things. Okay? Um, So that's at the core of what this text is getting at. Let's go on to scene number two. Um, Scene number two here is where we meet this man unnamed and undescribed by Mark. We know him as the rich young ruler from Matthew and from Luke. But here, Mark doesn't even tell us that much about him, which he is probably doing us a favor in this sense, trying to help us all identify with this man. Whether you think of yourself as young or rich, Mark takes those categories out. And he's just this man who comes and asks a good question to Jesus. So scene 2 begins in verse 17, and it notes, importantly, that Jesus is setting out on a, on a journey. In different translations, you translate it a little bit differently, but I think it's a good translation ESV has here saying he's setting out on a journey. And you don't have verse 32 in the handout, but verse 32, after our passage, tells us that Jesus then restarts his journey that got interrupted here, going to Jerusalem to die. So this is the journey that Jesus is starting. And right before he goes out the door, right before he hits the road, this man comes and interrupts their travels. The man has a burning question. He's dying to ask Jesus, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Mark doesn't criticize the question, and Jesus doesn't criticize the question. I think we should probably take it at face value. Was he trying to emphasize that he could earn his salvation? I don't know when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Even the word inherit kind of takes us into that financial realm, right? Of wealth and possessions and an investment that somebody made or could make. Um, I'm not sure if that's fair to this man or not, to be honest. But the man has this burning question, but Jesus is not in a rush to answer it, is he? The man, just by way of introduction and kind of being polite, says, good teacher, respectfully referring to Jesus. And and Jesus stops him there. He's like, whoa, 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 hold on a second here. Why are you calling me good? Which is a strange question for the goodest person in the world in history to ask, is it not? Why why does Jesus get caught up on this? And notice what he says. He says, he says, "Why, why do you call me good? Aside from God, there's no one good. It's essentially what he says. No one but God alone is good, ultimately. So why is Jesus like, is is he being, not like, I mean, if somebody introduced himself in that way, and you were like, hey, what, what what are you, why are you applying that to, it's kind of a, it almost would come across root, in in a sense. What is Jesus doing here? One of my favorite stories in Mark is in chapter 2, And it's a story where they unroof the roof. The friends of the crippled man unroof the roof and drop him down. And Jesus, instead of healing him first, says, Son, child, your sins are forgiven. And in their heads, the religious leaders ask the question, Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's the same language that's being stated here. Who is good? but God alone. And what Jesus is doing is he's bringing in theology. He's bringing in this question about understanding entrance into God's kingdom. Only God is good. Jesus is highlighting his divine nature here for us. And it's a very important theological point for how we understand entrance into God's kingdom. Right? Because we are all like this when we try and enter. Because there is no one who has anything in their purse to pull out, to to pay. Whether that be in material wealth or in spiritual wealth. We are all in poverty. So there's no one who's qualified. And then after that, look at what Jesus does next. In verse 18, he does something none of us would have done. We completely don't expect him to take this move. He quotes the last part of the Ten Commandments. And we're like, what? Jesus, are you a legalist? Like, you don't think that this man can enter the kingdom because he obeys the law perfectly? Why would Jesus ask this question? And why would he only quote the last half of the Ten Commandments? Do you remember the basic structure of the Ten Commandments? It's important to remember it here at this moment. What's the basic structure?" The first half focuses on God first. God first, on a relationship to God, on worship to God, on idolatry, forbidding idolatry. And then the last half focuses more on a relationship with people and um, a, a variety of different kinds of commands, which in general are easier for us to follow. Like, don't murder, right? In general, not entirely. Not entirely. So Jesus quotes from the last part of the Ten Commandments and says, you know the commandments. You want to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. And there's a lot of questions that this raises for us. But Jesus is saying, you know what God's standard for good is. Now the man responds. Look at how he responds in verse 20. He says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Which again raises questions for us. Is this guy legit? Is he proud? Is he... And I'm inclined to actually take him as sincerely asking questions and sincerely responding to questions. And the Lord doesn't actually challenge him at this point and say, well, actually, no, you haven't, right? Right? He doesn't challenge him directly in that way. And we actually have the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 saying that in, the, in regard to the law, he was blameless himself. So in some sense, in some sense, not in, not in a perfect, complete sense, but in some sense, this man perhaps actually could say, those, those laws that Jesus cited, he had, he had sought in his life to, to really follow. But here now in verse 21, we get to the heart of the matter in this scene. And here's something else for you to circle. Look at what he says, what happens in verse 21. Mark tells us, Jesus, looking at him. You you have this this moment that the narrator is making you pause and, and see what's happening. I mean, of course Jesus was looking at him like he was talking to him. But he emphasizes this. To, to get the, the pathos, the, the feeling of what is happening here. And Jesus looks at him, loved him, and said, you're lacking one thing. Go, sell it all, give it to the poor, and follow me. And this is the only place in the New Testament, in the Gospels, aside from John's Gospel, where we encounter a direct statement that Jesus loves somebody. Mark doesn't talk this way about anybody else in his whole gospel, which I think is very, very interesting. And Matthew and Luke don't either. John is the apostle of God's love, and so we get lots of that in John's gospel. This isn't about John's gospel. I would love to talk about that some other time. But it's really worth noting that Jesus is affectionate, loving this man as he engages with him. Um... There's a, there's a Welsh Puritan named William Williams that Martin Lloyd-Jones quotes as saying, The greatest characteristic of the greatest saint in all ages has always been their realization of God's love to them. The question here for this man that Jesus asks him, the, the question this man faces is, is, is Will this unnamed man understand Jesus' love for him in this moment? There's, there's so much for us to observe here in this section um, and to appreciate in this section, and we, we, we can't get caught up in too many of the details. Um, but notice how Jesus identifies this man as lacking something, right? One thing you lack. That's where he starts first. Um, that, that's not how other people perceive this man, we learn, right? Because in verse 22, we see he had great possessions. And we see how this man is a contrast to the children, right? The, 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 the kids in the earlier scene and this man are in stark contrast to one another. The little people who seem to lack everything have the credentials for the kingdom. But this man with great possessions is the one who lacks what is needed to inherit eternal life. So what is it that this man lacks? When Jesus gives him an answer, he says, go sell everything, give it to the poor, and follow me. Is Jesus' point at this point to say, look, you haven't done enough good deeds. You just need to give your wealth away to earn eternal life. Is that what Jesus is doing? Obviously, no. Jesus is going after the idol that he knows is in this man's heart. It's worth noting that the thing that this man lacks is something that is required by the portion of the Ten Commandments that Jesus didn't quote in verse 19. Do you understand what I'm saying there? What is it that this man lacks? He lacks wholehearted devotion to God above his wealth. Which is idolatry. Taking something in this world, um, some incomplete joy in this life, like Tim Keller says, and replacing God with it. Taking some incomplete joy of this world and building your entire life around it. That's where this man was. He wasn't obeying, you shall have no other gods before me. In the Ten Commandments. Jesus doesn't quote that, and he leaves it there for this man to, to reflect on as a very powerful sermon to him. So Jesus is going after his idols. In verse 21, Jesus invites this man to one thing, using a three-step process, sell, give, follow. And, And we need to remember, even as Jesus says that, he says, come and follow me. And where is Jesus going? He's pointing towards his suffering. Come and follow me on this journey I'm about to take to Jerusalem to die. Come and take your cross, like he's already said. Take up your own cross. But also come and join me in looking at my suffering. Because this is where you are going to find eternal life and salvation. So here we get to the core of scene two. Kingdom entrance requires wholehearted devotion. I just want you to think about this for a second. Taking people with him on the road to the cross is the most loving thing that Jesus can do for them. And that's what he is doing for this man, even as he confronts him in this way. Perhaps Jesus is is taking you down the road that he was inviting this man to go down. And that can take so many shapes and forms in our lives. And it can present us with so many struggles that become overwhelming. But this passage is inviting us to trust our King. All right. So we have seen how we have seen how kingdom entrance is something that is uh, it requires childlike empty handedness. We've seen how kingdom entrance here in this section requires wholehearted devotion, and then we come to scene three which is just loaded with irony and challenging (laughs) questions for us. And we have five-ish minutes to try and resolve all those questions for us here. And uh, to to be honest, um, I'm still struggling with verses 23 through 31 myself. But look again, in verse 23, here we have Jesus looking again. And Jesus looked around to his disciples. He knew when he said what he said to this man, and then the man left, that it left his disciples reeling. And so he looks at them, and he takes this opportunity to, to teach. And he says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to, king, to enter the kingdom of heaven, or the, the kingdom of God. Um, so let me try and focus, instead of getting in the details of this section, Let's try and get the big picture of it, okay? So let's just walk through the dialogue and then see it's, three, it's got three basic parts. So we start here with this first section where we see um, Jesus making this challenging statement. It's hard for people with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. That's a challenging statement that Jesus makes. And the disciples are amazed at his words, so he repeats it and illustrates it. So he says, how difficult again in verse 24. It is to enter the kingdom like a, a camel going through the eye of a needle. It's hard to get that thread through. Uh, it's hard to get a camel hair through. You're not getting a camel through the eye of a needle. It's, hard, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so the disciples were amazed in verse 24. Now they're astonished in verse 26. And they say, who can be saved? So that's your your first section of this last scene, that first section. And I think the basic idea Jesus is teaching us, kingdom entrance is difficult for the wealthy. And I think the reason for that is related to what we've already looked at about the requirements. Childlike empty handedness is not so easy when we have possessions. And I'm putting myself in the category, I think with all of us as we should, uh, in some sense or another, in the category of the wealthy here. But let's, uh, let's, try and, let's try and get the big picture still and not get into all the details. Kingdom entrance is difficult for the wealthy. He begins verses 23 through 25, and then we switch over in verse 26 and 27 to actually expanding that statement. Actually, as a matter of fact, kingdom entrance is impossible with man, but not with God. So you see what, what the disciples asked. Um, if, if a sincere, wealthy person who is really trying to do good and follow God's law can't enter the kingdom because his wealth inhibits him, then, then who's a candidate? What are the immig- immigration requirements? And, and how can anybody ever meet them? Right? Apparently they can't be met. Because the ones that we think are the best candid- candidates for immigration into the kingdom, they don't pass. That's the question. Jesus' response is to go back to the same phrase he uses with the father of the of the demon-possessed boy. The, the, the demon-possessed the father is like, if you can, help. And Jesus says, if I can, all things are possible to the one who believes. Nothing is impossible for God. Right? So it's impossible with man, but nothing is impossible with God. The, Kingdom entrance is impossible with man, but not with God. So that summarizes verses 26 and 27. And then uh, Peter begins to say something. And I'm not sure if Jesus interrupts him exactly, or if Peter just trailed off in what he was saying and wasn't quite ready to finish what he was saying. But Peter begins to say, See, we've we've left everything and followed you. And I think Peter is starting to map his experience onto the kingdom values that Jesus has described. And Peter is saying, like, I've kind of started to live the life you were calling this man to, right? And I don't think Peter is being arrogant in this entirely. I think he's trying to struggle through what Jesus is teaching at this point. So Jesus then shows us that the king's demands on his disciples will not go unrewarded, which is a really interesting finish to this this whole thing. Um, because, because putting ourselves in this posture of empty handedness is an uncomfortable thing to do it's a very risky and radical thing for us to do I mean we cannot deny that at the heart of this passage is a teaching that wealth is dangerous to our spiritual good like that's not very popular to say in the USA right? right? That's not popular to say in China. It's not popular to say to any person who is wanting to depend on themselves, which pretty much defines all of humanity. Empty-handedness puts us in a, a position of risk. And this last point is important for us because it reminds us it reminds us that those risks that we take, the demands that the king has on us to enter his kingdom. They will not go unrewarded. So Jesus gives us this list. You know, anybody who's left their house or their brothers or their sisters, their father, mother, children, or lands, and the possessions that this this man who came to Jesus had very much were in view when he says this. This man had land. Those were his possessions. Um, Anybody who's left those things, For my sake and for the gospel, which is going back to take up your cross for my sake and for the gospel's sake. He will. So Jesus uses a bunch of negatives here. But he will receive a hundredfold now in this time in houses and brothers, sisters, mothers, children and lands. With persecutions. So Jesus adds in this modified understanding of what the good life is in this time, but then emphasizes the age to come eternal life. And then he sums it all up by going back to what he was teaching with the children by saying many who are first will be last and the last first. Um, So I, I think that this is, at the core, what Jesus is getting at, what, what, what are the requirements for entrance into the kingdom? How can we immigrate into that kingdom? I think essentially he's saying we've got to embrace childlike empty-handedness. That's at its core what, what it's about. Um, our, our wealth is not going to get us there, wealth materially or spiritually even. Um, and the call for us, you know, professing believers here in this room is to recognize that the demands that Jesus makes on this man kind of at the front door entering into the kingdom are demands that presumably all of us have embraced when we placed our faith and trust in Christ on the first day that we did that. But those demands don't stop there. They only continue, expand, and grow, calling us into a deeper, radical commitment to living out the requirements of the kingdom. And I think that if you haven't had your heart challenged by something in your life today that you're thinking, maybe I need to make a decision about how I approach life with my resources or with, in some way or another in a radical way, then maybe you haven't understood this passage rightly yet. There, there, there are things that the people in my workplace value and think about wealth that cannot be a part of my life if I am entering the kingdom. And, and there, I have to look like a crazy person, like a radical lunatic follower of some sect in their eyes, in order to really be obedient to this passage. Now, I, I, that's not to say that Jesus' demand is the same. Jesus knew specifically this man's idols and said, you need to sell everything and give it to the poor. I'm not saying we all need to go and, you know, sell our homes to, tomorrow. Um, but but even saying that, I'm cautious to even give that caveat, because Jesus is intentionally intentionally driving at a radical commitment to Him. And we should feel the weight of that ourselves here this morning. And, uh, and what that looks like is not greatness because I give everything away. What that looks like is just this, this empty-handedness that is, that is willing to give it all in submission to our King. All right, We've run a little long and, um, and still haven't even done justice to this whole last section, but uh, let's just uh, ask for the Lord to Uh, to bring fruit from this time. Father, thank you for your word, for these truths, and for how insightfully Jesus uh, knows us and loves us. Even as he looks at this man, uh, he looks as well at us and speaks to us and challenges idols in our hearts as well. Uh, May your spirit continue that work in our lives as we think about these challenging words from our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.